Digital Drift, episode 71, recorded Thursday, 23rd of April, 2015, Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Same make. These were taken at the West Highland Police Station, 1984. You were there. Same model. These were taken today. You have to let me see my son. He's in great danger. New mission. Once, he was programmed to destroy the future. I don't know what it's like to try to kill one of these things. Now, his mission... Get down! ...is to protect it. Mom! Come with me if you want to live. His loyalty is to a child. Who sent you? You did. 35 years from now. And his enemy... He's a Terminator like you, right? Not like me. ...is the deadliest machine ever built. Can it be destroyed? Unknown. This time, there are two. Terminator 2. You just can't go around killing people. Why? If you thought you had seen it all... Look again. Stay down! Go! Now! We gotta stick together! Arnold Schwarzenegger. Terminator 2, Judgment Day. This time, he's back. For good. Trust me. One of the most important sci-fi action movies ever made gets the digital drift treatment. Back in August 2009, when recording the first pilot episode of something called Digital Cowboys Film Club, after reviewing Fight Club with my Cowboys co-host Tony Atkins, I promised next time would be Terminator 2. That should about do it for this episode of Film Club. Next time, in roughly three weeks, we'll be talking about Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Nearly six years later, here it is. Sharon Shaw, my wife and co-host, has joined me once again for an equally important influence on her formative years. Good evening. And Joshua Garrity of Kane and Rince and the Animation Archives joins us once again. Hello there. Hello. In every Terminator episode, we ask how the time travel works, and this one differs from the first. Sharon, and Josh, if you want to jump in as well, having read the novelizations of both, can you shed some light on exactly what went on here? Right. (laughs) Bear with me. The sequence of events in terms of how the Terminators are sent back goes thus if I remember rightly, because it is a very long time since I read the novels. Um, The Skynet uh, sends back the original Terminator, uh, the the Terminator from the first film, Mm -hmm. in response to the fact that the human resistance have smashed through their defence grid. Yeah. Um, Because nothing happens, nothing changes, they realise straight away that it didn't work. So they send through the prototype T-1000 after him. See, here's the thing. If something had happened, 
they would have gone, why did we send that Terminator back into the past? Everything's fine. We haven't been invaded by uh, the uh, humans, the revolution, and John Connor doesn't exist. Wait a second. Who's John Connor? And shut down. Because, I mean, like, <laughs> we were afraid that the, the Millennium Bug would make computers, which basically was like when computers would look at the calendar and go, hang on, there's a zero zero at the end of this year. Well, that must mean 1900. So I haven't been invented yet. I guess I'll shut down. The, we, we thought that that would kill all the computers in the world. A, a major time paradox? Yeah, I'm not quite sure what they thought. So they sent the first one back, and then they realised, oh, wait, that that didn't work because everything that's ever happened can be, would be, always would be going to be happening, and thus... Right, that's the bit that I think Skynet would struggle with. Yeah. I think it would just be as simple as nothing has changed, therefore we're going to have to try this again. But... But that's the thing, because when they sent it back, there's the, there's the time loop of the original where everything that's ever happened regarding time travel has has happened as part of the events of history in mm. this one stream. Yeah. And then when they send back the T-1000... The best they can possibly hope for is to alter the course of events in a different time stream. However... Given that Skynet probably hasn't seen the Back to the Future films, I don't think they would have known that either. Well, no, because the time travel works differently here. It's, it's different here, same as it's different to Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey and Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, where um, things like are happening in the future while you're waiting. Mm. It's like, oh, yes. they're about to split up. Don't forget a thousand to wind years your ago. watch. <laughs> um, look, see, here's the problem. I, I get that basically they could send someone back, and then that that would be a complete loop. But the moment that you send back someone else because it hasn't worked, mm. time is no longer a loop, and time is absolutely definitely no favor what we make for ourselves. Then maybe Skynet interrupted the loop by sending back the T1000. Maybe. So what? The, the, the T-1000 gets sent and then John and company break in and go, oh my God, they sent back two... That's right. They, they break in, they get mm. access to the, the time machine, um, he sends back Kyle. But, by the way, since it was always a loop, John always knew that the machines were going to send back uh, a Terminator and spent his entire life gearing up for that one moment. So he had Kyle all ready. That's right. Now, here is where I think the, the sending back of the T-1000 is the thing that's interrupted the loop. Prepare to go cross-eyed, folks. <laughs> because John obviously knew about Kyle, because yeah. he spent all this time preparing Kyle yeah. to be sent back. There's no version of these events where John doesn't know all about Kyle. Exactly. But it would appear he didn't know about the T-1000 until he broke into the machine. Now, I have, again, this is something that without being able to consult the novel, I cannot state with 100% accuracy, but I seem to recall that part of it is the T-1000 leaves a few drops of the, the uh, metal polyalloy behind in the time machine, and that's how they know. What? Yeah. <sighs> That's just the uh, novelization writer going, yes, James, now, how, what, do we, how? But now you understand <laughs> why in the film they go, it just happened. It just happened. It's probably best if you don't ask too many questions. Yeah, Basil Exposition needs to look into the screen and go, probably best if you don't think, don't about, think this about, about this too much. Don't think about this too much. But that's indeed. the thing. The whole crux of the film rests on, is it no fate but that which we make for ourselves? Or is it just totally a loop? Right. It's definitely I not a loop. 
it's I don't think it is a loop in T2 no. because I believe that the memory of watching the T800 disappear into the steel is something that comes into John's mind. Gotcha. So rather that, than that's him having had that from the that, beginning. That it, it switches from Terminator rules to Back to the Future rules. Yes. <sighs> Wait a tick. Basil, if I travel back to 1969 and I was frozen in 1967, presumably I could go visit my frozen self. But if I'm still frozen in 1967, how could I have been unthawed in the 90s and travel back to, oh no, I've gone cross-eyed? I suggest you don't worry about this sort of thing and just enjoy yourself. That goes for you all, too. Yes. Except... Except! <laughs> Except that it was a loop before. Yes, John it was. did spend his entire life doing that. It was me who stole my dad's keys. If only they could have tackled the T-1000 by dropping a bin on its head. It would have been so much simpler. We, we've got to get off this because we we're have. a loop. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. Okay, so let me ask you this one then. Let me ask you this. How come four people are sent back in the same one time machine and they end up at four different places in LA? That one is a good question. Terminator one ends up by the observatory. One Terminator ends up next to a biker bar. One oh, a truck stop. One uh, human ends up in a uh, uh, an alley with this hobo who goes, this son of a bitch took my pants. And one T-1000 ends up in a waste ground. Yeah, I have no answer for that one. Oh. Josh, any ideas? No. A wizard did it. A techno wizard. <laughs> See, well, I've started off nitpicking this thing. It's one of the best films ever. And I, the only reason I'm asking is because I know this film back to front, front to back, inside out, and inside out and front to back. And I yeah. still don't get the time travel aspects of it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Could it be successfully argued that Terminator 2 serves as both a family blockbuster remake of the low-budget adults-only original and an example of history repeating. If so, why? I'll let Josh go on this one. I've talked extensively about time <laughs> looping and my eyes have fallen out. <laughs> um, it, it's, certainly, it's definitely a kind of using the same themes as the first one. Mm. Although, I don't know. I, I think it kind of stands alone, though, in that, like, it it does want to dig a little bit deeper uh, in terms of the subject matter that it's talking about, um, with the, the whole the whole stuff with um, with Sarah Connor trying to prevent the the future that uh, that um, that awaits everyone, um, and just her dreams and all of that stuff and like the the idea of facing a nuclear apocalypse uh, a uh, an apocalyptic scenario like that um i th- th- all of this stuff feels much more um philosophical than the first one the first mm. one feels like a a raw nerve it feels like it's 
it's kind of tapping into the base emotions in 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 the audience whereas this film really feels like it's trying to get you to ponder on some of the issues that we kind of ignore in our day-to-day life um no no film since terminator 2's release has uh, so effectively conveyed the utter horror of a you know world war three scenario um that explosion is the one of the scariest things i've ever seen in Mm. cinema and um it kind of the thing i'm i'm increasingly terrified by how um comfortable everyone's become with the idea of atom bombs and and so forth and so on um i these things there's so many of them in the world and uh, this film felt like it was trying to shake people out of apathy. Definitely. Remember, you were scared of these, like just you know, ten or twenty years ago. Remember when you were scared of these things, and now you don't care. Well, these things are still completely and utterly devastating. I, I yeah, um, that scene is incredible. I've kind of gone off topic here. No, but, no, okay. um, yeah, but. Um, I, I just feel that th- this is more than just a remake of the first one. It, it feels like it wanted to take those ideas that the first film uh, established and really build on top of them and explore, you know, explore territory that we're uncomfortable with exploring but needs exploring. Mm. If you look at uh, the characters in the films, the touchstone for the first film is Kyle Reese, since he he comes back from the future war, he's traumatized, he's terrified, and uh, L.A. is an alien place which he has to um, conduct his mission in and try desperately to succeed. But it's so dark and dour, and the music is so um, electronic and oppressive, uh, and the Terminator's ever-stalking and relentless that just the whole thing feels like you're experiencing it through Reese's eyes, even when uh, Sarah's, even though technically it is Sarah's story. And T2 is John's. Yeah. In both instances, Sarah is not so much along for the ride. She's the one doing the growing. And also, you know, obviously uh, uh, Reese cracks in the uh, first one and does sort of growing of his own, but it's, it's kind of a, a broken growth. And he doesn't really get a chance to see it flourish. And in this, John steps up to become the leader. And Sarah goes through the repercussions of it all for both of them. Because basically, John's the one who, like, the T-1000's after. And that the whole plot seems to revolve around him. But John's also the one calling the shots. John defines what the team is going to do. Sarah, having taken on all of Reese's trauma is almost outdated because John's calm determination to do more than just smash kind of supersedes that. And it it shows Sarah a way forward beyond the the terrifying paranoid um, war that they've been fighting as Reese. Ultimately, Kyle was following John Connor. And in the second one, Sarah follows John Connor. I think you could say, though, that I know what you mean about the first one being kind of from Kyle's perspective because of how nerve-jangling and alien L.A. feels. But I think part of that is because um, although he's he's there and he's kind of 
almost dictating the pace as much as he can. That obviously the pace is really being dictated by the Terminator itself. Yeah. Um, but Sarah is the the that film. But remember, is the of course, the Terminator is also his shadow. Of course, yeah. Um, well, the the Terminator is is like is both of their shadow. But yeah. the um, the process of the film is Sarah taking on his perspective. So that alienness of L.A. Yeah. Gradually, it, it cuts from it being so alien to yeah. him to the normality of it for her, and then gradually it shifts and his becomes passed on. Um, so that by the end of it, she's seeing it that way too. Now, with T2, you've got um, uh, Sarah opening the narration, which to me makes it very clear that this is her story, mm. but she's passing the torch on to John. Yeah. And you, you're right, his... Um, I mean, the way I, I summed it up was he has a child's exuberance yeah. that she no longer has. She lost her innocence a long time ago. Um, John has maintained his, despite the fact that he's had this really uh, distorted childhood that a lot of people would look at and say, well, that should surely strip away any innocence that he has. But it hasn't. That's the thing. There is a core of, I wouldn't say it's not positivity and it's not optimism, but Hope. just... Yeah, hope. Sarah he doesn't has, have the hope. He no, is the hope. So, exactly, yeah, he draws exactly. her back from he the edge. He carries that with him. But for me, um, and I mean, I don't know how much I'll be able to go into this without getting really dull and lengthy. But this is, for me, what continues what I was talking about with the first one, setting up this idea of the um, the anima and the animus who are being pursued by um, the, the shadow of the self that the human race ends up becoming. The point of uh, all of the disparate elements of the human psyche that that Jung outlined, um, and obviously they are all symbolic elements, you know, it's not really that the human mind is all divided up into these sections, they all interact and they're all part of, of one person. But the idea is that the more separate those elements are, and the less able to interact with each other and, um, and, uh, change and turn about in terms of what is the best part of you to deal with any given situation um, is the the result of kind of you know people who've been through trauma or people who've got um, anxiety issues or you know all of those things that you work through your life trying to resolve the aim if you're looking at, at psychotherapy from that perspective is to get all of those elements of yourself reconciled so that you can have this this self with a cast um, that is able to reflect all of those elements and use all of those elements when the circumstances call for it. Now, that is what John is working towards. He's kind of, he's he's a child self at this stage. He's only just come about, and at the, this point, he's still learning, and he's still working out how these uh, parts of, of himself all fit together. But by the end of it, the idea is that he will be the strategist that is able to lead the, the psyche of the human race through to success. And by doing that, he has to be able to take on all of the roles that he's being presented with. And one of the things I really enjoyed about the watching the, the film this time was seeing how they all swap roles throughout the film. Sarah starts off as this uh, defeated and crushed uh, anima from before, trapped and and totally unable to um, to put across her her view of the world without people believing that she's she's completely gone off the deep end. 
But she also goes through cycles of being the protector. And then when that becomes too intense and she goes too far to the other side, she turns into the shadow and she becomes the stalking presence. And obviously we'll, we'll talk about that later. Um, but they, they do intersect and they interact and they change positions and perspectives a lot more than in the first film where their roles for the, the core three people are all very clearly delineated and they don't really do turn and turn about very much. But as I said earlier, John's the one setting the tone in this. It mm. is a movie that would appeal to boys like John in that yeah. it's like, oh, yeah, motorbike chase, and now a truck's chasing him down the thing, and then he jumps over on the motorbike and does the shooty thing. That is not like any of the action sequences in the first one. The first one is the stalking figurehead of death. This one, they're actually trying to be exciting. And yeah. while there is uh, a lot of extreme drama throughout the film, uh, when uh, specifically when Sarah gets involved, she's not the one setting the tone for the whole film. No, she's not. And I would, I would also interject girls like John too, because I wasn't much older than him when I saw this, and and I really Absolutely. engaged with it on those grounds that uh, it was incredibly exciting, and the things he was going through, while terrifying, were also damned awesome. You also don't have to be a traumatized future warrior to see the Terminator from Kyle's perspective. <laughs> well, indeed. <laughs> I would never suggest such a thing, but that, that my point is that uh, they they very specifically made John that age for this mm. point. They yeah, could have yeah. made John like a toddler, frankly, and um, like, you know, had had it still be majorly Sarah's story. But John's the one who steps up to the plate in this one. Uh, it's important, I think, that he's at an age where he is old enough to start wanting to make his own decisions, but not quite old enough to already be practiced at that. Yeah. Yeah. And to go back to a question I asked about six hours ago regarding it being a remake of the uh, low-budget original, um, other films that do this, I'll give you one. If you can think of any more, then uh, then let me know. I've got three here. Uh, one is Desperado. Basically, Desperado is El Mariachi with a budget, and yet it's still within the continuity of El Mariachi. The events of El Mariachi have actually occurred to the same guy, played by a different guy. Can you guess the other two I got? Evil Dead 2? You know it's Evil Dead 2. You said it yesterday. <laughs> no, but I couldn't remember whether it was Evil Dead 2 or Evil Dead 3. <laughs> yeah, technically, uh, Evil Dead 2, it re it recounts the events of the original Evil Dead uh, in the first, well, in the intro to the movie, basically. Uh, uh, but then most of the rest of Evil Dead 2 is kind of like sort of retreading the same ground, but um, just elaborating on it and uh, doing it with uh, more budget, more humour, and uh, just, just much more wit quick. And uh, there's one more. Josh, I want to see if you can get this one. <laughs> How do uh, I feel like I should know this? What, uh, it's uh, Mad, Mad Max. Oh, of course. Yeah. So, uh, which elements from the original repeat, if you want to list them by in chronological order, just as in moments and themes and uh, um, situations that happen in the original The Terminator that just happen to also happen in Terminator 2, just to corroborate this idea of it being a remake of sorts? 
God, I don't know if I can do them all in chronological order. Uh, <laughs> one of the most significant ones is near the end. We'll start um, at the beginning, shall we? It's <clears throat> the, the future war, obviously. Right. Okay, so yeah, so you've got the opening shots with the um, the skulls and the uh, caterpillar tracks And crushing. the HKs, yeah. And the HKs, yeah, and the uh, endoskeletons walking around with bloody mm. great big machine guns. And this is effectively a bigger budget version of uh, that, that skirmish that uh, Reese remembers. In fact, that truck turning over and exploding, which he was apparently in in his dream happens in mm. both yeah so that's one okay the next one is uh, the t-800 after having gone back in time meets a bunch of disreputable punky types uh, but yeah. rather than putting his fist through one of them he just beats them up and takes their clothes yes oh you've got the uh, the beats are the same for the introductory part you've got the arrival of the t-800 mm-hmm. Um, then the arrival of the T-1000, which parallels with the arrival of, of Kyle. Um, and then it cuts to John with his friend on his bike, the same way the first one cut to Sarah on her moped arriving mm. at the restaurant. Only rather than ding, diddle, diddle, ding, ding, mm. ding, music, it's Guns and Roses! Yeah! <laughs> I feel like rather than you could be mine, it, it should be uh, civil war. And then the the first point of um, of uh, distancing it from the first one is when you then cut to Sarah, and she's doing an her additional layer pull ups. Yeah. yeah. Um, interestingly, the the fact that the T one thousand, rather than like hiding from the police, just kills the police and and assu- becomes the police and becomes the police, just showing how much ahead of Kyle he is. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, I got to call him Reese because otherwise, when I say Cal, I think Cal. Cal. <laughs> <laughs> I have machine guns which are better than cows. Um, okay, uh, actually, if you want to jump forward, the the uh, analog of the police station scene, the hospital, the hospital, the asylum. Um, the it's uh, it's a government institution. It should be absolutely totally secure. The T one thousand just walks right in there. And the Silberman's there as well. Yep, absolutely. And the only reason it doesn't become a bloodbath is because they wanted to make this accessible for families. And uh, after that, uh, you've got uh, Reese's dreams, which happened repeatedly in the first one. At least three times Reese has a dream. That happens to Sarah. And she's dreaming of, uh, uh, rather than the future, what's going to happen to her future that's going to create that dark future. I think the dreams that she has um, about the uh, the blast are probably more ana- uh, analogous to uh, Reese's dreams than the dream sequence that was put back into the special edition because she's more involved in that. There's more going on and she actually talks and engages and, and things happen. And I don't think that ever happens mm. in any of Reese's dreams. Uh- in both the films, Sarah's the one who gives them away. Technically, uh, in both cases, they had gotten away pretty much scot-free. There was, uh, like, um, in, the, in the original, they were in the motel, and if Sarah just kept stum, then the T-800 probably wouldn't have found her. Uh, and in this, if Sarah hadn't gone marching after um, uh, Miles, then the T-1000 wouldn't have had a crime scene to investigate. But uh, in, in both cases, Sarah gives them away. Uh, and then... then oh, um- Hang on, just jumping back a little bit. Uh, the murder of the foster parents is paralleled, um, parallels the murder of Matt and Ginger. Indeed. 
Yeah. And indeed, the, the murder of Sarah's mother. Um, mm. And the uh, chase to the factory, both times they're being chased by a Terminator in a truck. There's a crash in both of them. There's an explosion in both of them. The protector sacrifices himself in both of them and experiences, and the T-800 in both of them experiences a crushing. But there is also fire in this one. Fire is a recurring theme throughout Terminator 2, which wasn't in the original. What is the symbolic significance of fire within Terminator 2? To me, it's representative of the human spirit, which is what John himself is the personification of. Mm -hmm. It's also emblematic of human technology, because if you think about it, the first actual technology was the ability to harness fire and obviously nuclear power in this case manifested with this terrible fire at the very beginning in the uh, intro sequence after the war. So you've got the first ever technology that is exemplified by pretty much the last technology that humanity would create that would be its undoing. Uh, how fitting that fire ends up being that technology's undoing in the end, then. Absolutely. The idea of man's first creation taking out its last. like that. We, we've talked about how this film isn't about loops, but there's a loop right there. Uh, it's, a, it's a really beautiful moment. Sharon, you pointed out that it's not just fire at that point, though, is it? Well, I mean, we talked about the, the Terminator in the first one. They think they've killed it three times. Yeah. Yeah, and the same thing happens in this one, but there they are elemental um, deaths. So first of all, he uh, plows up the embankment and into the stone bridge. Uh, so that's they've attempted to kill him with earth. Then he gets flooded with the uh, liquid nitrogen, mm -hmm. and they freeze him. So they've attempted to kill him with ice, and then finally he's melted into the steel, and its fire is the the thing that succeeds ultimately. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but also the fact that it's steel means mm. he's not just burned up, he's technically reabsorbed into our technology. That's right, yeah. Right. It's it's a, a method of... it. it... Right, again, without wanting to get too... Yes, you do. ...navel-gazing You totally want to. <laughs> <laughs> right, Commence navel-gazing Right, part of my viewpoint on the process of... Uh, living and dying and passing on. Whether metaphorically or literally, depending on how you want to look at it, I am very interested in the idea that all the, the accumulation of your experiences and, and the things that you learn uh, when you're alive, when you, when you die, those things are dissipated back into the human race in one form or another, whether because you have passed on that knowledge to your children, whether because you have, uh, you know, done something good for your fellow human, you know, in some way, what you have achieved in your lifetime goes back into the collective. And by being uh, melted down rather than simply crushed and wrecked and chucked away, the T-1000 is not gone. The, the shadow, and as I said before, when you, when you look at how the shadow needs to be tackled in terms of, of psychological reconciliation, you can't crush it. You can't 
ignore it, and I think you've talked about this before as well, Josh, it, it will rise up stronger than, than ever before if you try to just push it down. You have to examine it, take it apart, take the things that are going to be useful and reabsorb them. And that's exactly what they do. And the same thing happens with the T-800. He is melted down and reabsorbed. He is not gone. He is still a part of this world. In fact, he has become more something that is a part of this world, as opposed to the bits that are left over from the original Terminator, which are kept in glass cases behind locked doors and aren't really allowed to integrate with the rest of, of human life. Um, only uh, Dyson and his um, his inventor friends have any real connection with it. They're, they are working towards the idea of these bits and pieces giving something great to humanity. But what they don't know is that by keeping those things locked away and not really um, considering the consequences of what they're doing, they are creating human uh, humanity's own destruction. One uh, thing I wanted to mention about the the recurrences, uh, there is a there are several lines, obviously, which um, pop up throughout the film, which are echoes yeah. of the first one. Mm-hmm. Um, but one that didn't hit me until this time is when they're in uh, Miles Dyson's house after uh, Sarah's had her attempt at assassinating him, and um, the T eight hundred and John have turned up and John goes straight to her. That beat is the motel scene from the first one. She has gone rigid and John talks to her to break her out of that, which is what Sarah does with Reese. And he says, and uh, she says to John, I love you, John, I always have. And Reese says to Sarah, I love you, Sarah, I always have. Yeah. So technically, Sarah starts out as uh, you know the the would be protector. She's trained herself to be, but she is uh, barred from doing that. And then when she gets out, because there is another protector around, she feels threatened by the fact that he's doing what she perceives as her job. Uh, then she accepts that he's the protector and goes off to become the Terminator and the Shadow herself. Then when she gets that purged from her, because it really is she has to just let that drop it's this it was this desperation to prevent this at any cost and then she has to amend the at any cost it's the 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 payment for that would simply be too great and uh then she goes back to being able to kind of like uh two hand the protection with um the t800 well, she does that throughout the film. If you notice, um, it starts very early on when they're escaping from the hospital and they're in the lift. He shouts to them both, get down. Once she's made sure John is down and is safe, she grabs the gun out of his waistband and she mm. starts taking pot shots at the T-1000 as well. She will not, in this film, sit by and let other people mm. defend her. But specifically yeah. after meeting Miles, she accepts the T-800 and she trusts him. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, at the end, she uh, will. Uh, she, she. I mean, she was always going to die for John Connor, uh, uh, but uh, she gets tested to the point where it's just a simple case of call to John. And of course, she's not going to, and we know she's not going to. But we have to see her resolve here, uh, you know, which is exemplified by simply "fuck you." Mm, yeah. Which, oh, interestingly, is a nice sort of reprise of "fuck you, asshole." Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
Or your terminated fucker. Indeed, your terminated fucker. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, and John obviously starts out as the target, and then, along with his mother, uh, decides to be much more proactive. And this is something that Sarah was beginning to touch on in the original Terminator. Uh, she was saying to Reese, look, we can do this. We can get, you know, go uh, destroy this place. And, uh, but together they can give themselves a new direction. And that, as I said last time, changes up the whole movie. It changes from what was going to just be a running battle to take out the T-1000 to, act, to actually actively trying to change the timeline in a way they weren't trying to before. And uh, they, they, like I said, they, they trimmed these bits out in the first one because they would have been tipping their hands. But at the very, very end, after Sarah's been taken away in a stretcher and Kyle Reese is uh, put into a, what actually turned out to be James Cameron's suit bag, not a body bag because that was cheaper, um, uh, the uh, camera pans up and it says Cyberdyne Systems, showing that the, uh, the factory they just uh, exited belonged to the same factory that would then go on to make uh, if not Skynet, the uh, the basis of the robotics um, at at its core. This is doing what the original would have done if it had that scope. But obviously, yeah. the original had to be a straightforward loop, and it works much much better for to have these two together. Mm. I think it it is a really intriguing way to watch them to see. T2 first and mm. then go back because it, it is self-contained. You can watch it and they give you enough information from the first one to be able to follow the story without any problems at all. There is yeah. very little missing. There's an absolutely excellent intro from uh, Linda Hamilton explaining the world in very, very simple but very poignant language. Mm. Uh, and it, it tells you all you need to know about the Terminator. So really, as you say, the, you almost have to be of an age where... Um, this will be Terminator two would be less thrilling for you uh, to actually appreciate and see the original Terminator. So it's almost it almost works better for it to be the T two followed by its prequel um, when you're of an age to actually watch the far more dark, somber, threatening, and um, unhappy film. Mm. But then you go back and watch T two again, and it gives it all that scope. Also, um, I never noticed this before until you pointed it out, Sharon, but John in the very, very original early scene when it's the old John Connor mm-hmm. and uh, he's you know, surveying the troops in the battlefield, he's moving robotronically. He has yeah. almost become a Terminator himself in order to take down this enemy. Mm-hmm. He has stripped away his own humanity, which doesn't fit with the very human child we see throughout this film. I don't know because the the snippet that you see of him there is very tiny, mm. um, yeah. and I I think it it's not difficult to see how he as a psychologically whole person and as somebody who can look at their enemy and think well actually they do have qualities that I would benefit from, um, mm. he would be able to take the parts of. Uh, Skynet and the, the the machines that will help them. This is a, a recurring theme, not just in in sci-fi, but in all fiction. That 
when you're trying to take down an enemy, you kind of have to adopt some of the the traits of the uh, mm. of the person you're trying to take down. Like, I mean, like this happens all the time in crime drama. Like Heat, for example, you're you're watching two characters who, in any other circumstance, would be best friends, but because they are on opposite sides of the law, they're enemies. Mm. Um, and but like being so similar it's what makes them so um capable of one-upping each other and that's what happens in all conflicts um what ends up happening is that both sides end up looking quite similar uh from a distance um mm. just because they have to be in order to compete with each other and what can we tell about John from his room? I don't know if you saw the super extended edition, uh, uh, Josh, but uh, yeah. if you go on the Blu-ray, uh, to the, there's like a code entry below the extended edition. It's 8-29-97, which is August 29th, 1997, the date of Judgment Day. And that gives you a version with a one little scene in John's room and then an alternate ending, which we'll talk about at the end of this podcast. Um, did you see that? Uh, yes, I have seen it, yeah. Um do you remember what's in John's room that tells us a little bit about him? <laughs> Aside from music posters from varying qualities of band, so you got Social Distortion and Prong and Public Enemy. One thing those posters do show, though, and um, and John's sort of what uh, either Todd or Janelle, I can't remember which one of them it is, comments about him. Uh, going off on his bike and you know throwing himself into uh, detached behaviour. Um, that's that's a direct uh, quote from Todd. <laughs> You're throwing yourself into detached behaviour, little piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> that's um, I, I would say a little bit unusual for somebody as young as John. He is no, only ten. But uh, in, in part, it's kind of reinforcing the uh, the stereotypical view of a child from a broken home. Um, and secondly, it's it kind of made me think there could be a couple of reasons why John is uh, dissociating from the world at this point, which, you know, to a degree is, is kind of what you would perceive as typical teenage behavior but again you'd expect that in somebody maybe four or five years older than him not at his age but i think that it's partly because he's been exposed to this constant drip feed of of this apocalypse that's going to happen all of that awareness of uh the the dangers of the world out there that you're moving towards again it's something that somebody of his age wouldn't normally have come into contact with uh, but he's not been able to avoid it which in a way, makes his ability to hang on to this hopeful ideal even more impressive. Mm. Yeah. I also spotted a soldering iron in his room, which suggests he's very good with machinery, and uh, a computer, which is virtually unheard of, especially uh, in a foster family where they don't like you very much. So chances are he's used his um, easy money machine to get him enough cash to get a computer so that he can actually start learning about tech. From an early age. I, I suspect, actually, um, given that we never actually see John picking anybody's pocket, I think that's Todd or Janelle's credit card. <laughs> uh, also, what is the significance of John playing Missile Command in the arcade, the Galleria? Well, that game 
what's it what i i find continually fascinating about that video game is that it does have an apocalyptic ending to it no matter what you do yeah um no matter how hard you try every town is going to get blown up and you're going to lose resources um so i i kind of felt like in that moment it was kind of kind of the the james cameron trying to tell us that um trying to reinforce the theme of his fate being inevitable but then to subvert it later on Mm. um i don't know if that's what you got from it well i think there's a very deep significance in it being missile command because um uh, have you seen the extra credits episode on this by the way yes i have it's flipping fascinating for those of you who never played it missile command was an arcade game developed in 1980 In this game, you used a trackball to fire rockets from three different missile defense platforms in order to protect six cities from an unending rain of ICBMs. Given that this game was built over a quarter century ago, it doesn't have much going for it in the way of graphics or sound. The missiles are single-pixel glowing dots, the cities are bichromatic skyscraper silhouettes, and the explosions resound in that great old Atari rumble. And yet, it manages to express one of the most compelling narratives about nuclear war that we've ever experienced. How does it do so? Through play. This is a very carefully crafted game. Almost no element was haphazardly added. So let's look at them one by one. First, the game is non-violent. The player never launches a nuclear missile. They never fire at an enemy. In this game, the villain is unknown and unimportant. The game is entirely about trying desperately to save lives. Rather than losing its narrative and aggression and dominance, the game does something very rare for a video game. It puts the player in a position of completely reactionary weakness. It does this to set the boundaries of the experience which the player is exploring. The player can't get lost in the awesome power of nuclear weapons or revel in gratuitous destruction. That isn't what this experience is about. This is a story about being on the receiving end of a nuclear strike. Let's take a look at this narrative choice for a moment. This is a much more human, a much more relatable story than one of mass destruction and conquest. By choosing this narrative to focus on, the creator, David Thurer, has presented the player with a role they can understand, a role they can emotionally assume as they experience the game. That of an individual who not only doesn't have limitless power, as is the video game norm, but in fact has very little power to fulfill a task of dire responsibility. So let's look at this role and how it's reinforced by play. When the player steps up to the machine, they take on the role of a regional commander of three small missile defense bases. This choice of scope is important. It's human in scale. We can understand six cities. We can imagine six real towns in our home state and project ourselves onto the experience. We can all emotionally invest in those few bases, in that handful of towns, in a way that we simply couldn't if the game had tasked us with defending an entire country. Now before we even begin to talk about play, think about being the commander of these few small, poorly stocked facilities. You probably never expected them to be used. You probably think of yourself as part of a deterrent for a war that could never possibly come. But now, as soon as you put that coin in that slot, the war is upon you. So let's look at how this is reinforced mechanically. Missile Command, a 30-year-old game, comes with what is perhaps the best and most difficult set of moral choices any video game has ever presented. Inevitably, as you play Missile Command, you'll come to a point where you have to make a choice. Who do you defend? You have limited resources and a seemingly endless onslaught to repel. Do you try and defend everyone? Do you go out of your way and try to save that one distant town? Or do you let it and everyone in it vanish in an instant of cataclysmic fire so you have a better chance of saving the rest of the lives you're responsible for? Do you let the soldiers under your command, men who know their duty but at the same time trust you to keep them alive, die when it comes down to protecting them or your civilians? Do you let a million lives get turned to ash so that you can defend one of your military installations, vital for protecting the other five million for whom you're responsible? Do you jeopardize the many for the few, or sacrifice the few for the many? 
The game reinforces all of these choices mechanically. You start the game with six cities, but as cities die, it becomes easier and easier to protect those that remain. So do you let five vanish so that you can at least ensure the survival of the sixth? After all, you only lose when all six cities are gone. Also, each of your missile bases has their own supply of ammo and their own strategic location. Losing any one of them early in a stage severely hampers your ability to defend your cities. Thus, weighing the value of your bases against the value of your cities becomes a tricky question. Moreover, the player has to make all of these judgments lightning fast. They have to make them in real time, just as the character they're playing would. The player can feel that tension and that paralyzing indecision that accompanies choices of that gravity, and, in the end, walks away with a new respect for anyone who has to make choices of that magnitude, with the speed and confidence they need to be made. And what's it all for? What's the bluntest point made by this game? That you can't win. No matter how many stages you survive or how much time you spend playing, you can't beat Missile Command. Nuclear War has no winners. Your job is futile, but you do it anyway because you can buy people a few more minutes of hope. And what happens when you inevitably lose? The game eschews the typical game-over screen, found in almost every arcade game of its day, for something a lot darker. With two symbols, it reinforces the horror of what's occurred in a way that most modern games fail to do with pages of script. It simply says, the end, across the flash of an incoming explosion. This is a game that tells a narrative about nuclear war and the human struggles to be found therein, and it does so solely with its mechanics, balancing and incentivizing each side of impossibly difficult moral choices. It's stark and sobering in a way that few films or even books have managed to convey. But hey, that's enough from us. We'll just leave you with the effect this game had on its creator. This is taken from an interview with Thurer, years after the game launched. He said, I'd wake up in the middle of the night from a nightmare where I'd see these streaks coming in, and I'd be up in the Santa Cruz Mountains, and I'd see it hit Sunnyvale, and I'd know I had about 45 seconds until the blast reached me. I had those nightmares once a month for a year after I finished Missile Command. Thurer always thought of the six cities in Missile Command as the coastal cities of his home state of California. Yeah. The fact that it's unavoidable actually plays in better with Terminator 3, where yeah. they, they are pushing the constants and variables. Part of that for me as well, if you look at the other games that he goes to... Afterburner. Yeah. He's training himself. <laughs> he's teaching himself... Uh, it's, these are simulators for him. And if you look at the, the concentration on his face when he's doing them as well, he is not a kid playing. He is practicing. And Missile Command is strategy. Yeah. It's strategy that will inevitably fail, but it's strategy. It's a Kobayashi Maru, if you will. Yeah. So maybe that's what the, the process of t playing that game is teaching him, that you will lose and you're going to have to face that. And he, in fact, he, he kind of refers back to that cryptically later on when he sees the kids playing with the guns, when he says, we're not going to make it. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, during that, uh, it, it feels like you know, fairly heavy-handed symbolism there. But then the mum picks them up and, and drags them off saying, I'll wring your necks. Um which you're kind of supposed to go, yeah, thanks, Mom, just sort of stopping that. But no, wait a second. That's Skynet. That's yeah. Skynet actually wringing all of our necks at once. Yeah. I, hmm, 
I don't know I, if I would go with that because I, I think there are. Well, certain... she doesn't actually wring their necks. She well, just no, no, threatens no, no, no. to. No, but I mean in the in the sense. And were Skynet, Skynet is... actually a worthy mother to us, it would launch the missiles and have us all shit our pants and then detonate them all uh, in uh, you know, when they they reached suborbital atmosphere. I, I, I would imagine the nuclear fallout from that would fucking kill us all. But uh, maybe, maybe, maybe if we did it a couple of times and actually gave us a, uh, a an idea of. What would it be like to look at our fate and go, it, fuck, we put ourselves doesn't. here? It doesn't. And there is sci-fi and there will be sci-fi that we will be watching very soon mm. about um, uh, artificial intelligence that thinks that the best thing for the human race is actually for it to be put down. Um, oh, unless maybe it, it could launch a missile and then Schwarzenegger could go, John, I go, you stay, no following. <laughs> And then he flies <laughs> up because he can fly and goes, Superman. Yeah. Um, There's another fantastic nuclear movie, folks. But um, ultimately, Skynet acts out of fear. As, as I said in, for the first one, it's, it's not reacting with logic. Mm. I was trying the to humans try Lyra, actually, and saying, why, why, did, why did Lyra destroy us? Why did Lyra destroy us? <laughs> Freud. I was... <laughs> I was trying to explain this to Lyra earlier today. I, I was trying to explain why Skynet decided the human race had to die. Is it just a defense mechanism? It senses that they're going to pull the plug on it. And in, in a defense mechanism that it just calculates the entire human race is equal or lesser than it. It just re I think it just reacts unthinkingly to a threat. They try to turn it off. It does the thing that will take out its enemy, which at that point, as far as uh, Skynet's concerned, its enemy is the entire human race, or at least the yeah. side of it that's on its side of the planet. Mm. But then I, it, I, I, it can't learn the value of human life and go, ooh, may have, I may have, I overreacted. <laughs> you overreacted. Well, Skynet hasn't been programmed with emotions. It's self-aware. It's it's aware of its own being, but it's not it's not capable of feeling empathy or sadness or regret. So, in in that sense, it's kind of the perfect psychopath. Um, but it, brilliant! Worth... All it feels feels is fear and anger. Yeah. These days, we'd get um, David Cage on it, and he would teach it emotions. He would teach it sadness and regret and rain and polygons. Just, if polygons equals seventy-two, how many emotions is Terminators? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's no polygons on the Terminator uh, in T uh, two, but then there's millions of polygons on it in T three. Carry on. <laughs> Does that mean the T-1000 is a more emotional being than the T-800? Yeah. Well, uh, um, uh, yeah, T-800. Yeah, you're right. Um, I don't know. If, maybe it was just one big bent polygon. Okay. It's yeah. difficult to tell if, if uh, T-1000 is polygonal or not. It's, uh, it's very smooth. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> if you haven't seen the Jim Sterling doing David Cage stuff, all this is fucking funny, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you do kind of have to have seen that. Yeah. Sorry, you were talking about emotions and polygons. <laughs> yeah, just 
just that I don't I don't think Skynet has a higher purpose in this like Sharon says I I think it's just done a maths equation and gone if I demonstrate how intelligent I am to these people they're going to get scared they're going to unplug me so the best course of action is to make sure there's nobody left to un- unplug me and become self-sustaining and and uh, create a new race uh, of machines now I I the sim- I do think there's symbolic value of the mum, uh, the mother just taking those kids away because in a world that's completely dominated by machines that have no emotions, that have no pride or or higher goals, there wouldn't be conflict, there wouldn't be war because nobody would disagree with each other. There would be no opinions or anything. They just exist, um, which is in- incredibly depressing. Um, mm. Uh, Agreed. It is incredibly depressing. (laughs) But, um, yeah, but that's, uh, I mean, that theme has been explored in a lot of sci-fi films, um, some rubbish ones as well. (laughs) But uh, Equilibrium is a film with a lot of ideas, but is not a particularly great film. Mm. But the... The the concept of wiping out emotions from the human race, kind of destroying the concept of war, the concept of conflict, concept the of concept art. of crime. Yeah, and, and it's an incredibly depressing like depiction of the future. I I think it's far too high a price to pay for um, you know uh, just complete peace and and quiet. Um, it's it's like what. Um, what happens at the end of Captain America, Winter Soldier as well. Um, like Samuel L. Jackson says, I, I'm brave enough, you know, not to take this action because the price is too high for the, yeah. you know, what you're trying to achieve here. I, I would rather live in a world where terrorists and war is a possibility than wipe out so many people just so you can have your utopia. That's actually um, what I said to Lyra. I said that the uh, that Skynet judged it that it would rather have control than the chaos that humans br- brung. Yeah, exactly. uh, uh, but if asked, all humans, pretty much across the planet, would say we'd rather just have had the mess. Yeah, yeah. You say that. I don't think they all would. Yeah, I'm sure there would be <laughs> I, some some people who'd be like, holding the reins are quite keen on the idea of continuing to hold the reins. But oh, but you'd um, be dead, folks. Just so well, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, the thing is, though, I that idea of if you if you repress all uh, human emotion, then you end up with a a state of peace that's not true because that's not harmony repressing those things which are a natural state of being for for humans does not result in a perfectly calm uh entirely together person who never feels anything bad ever it just results in somebody who is terrified of ever letting those things out and believe me folks one day it will come out you better not be standing in front of it when it does But here's the thing. Skynet wants to learn. It creates the Terminators as its children. They are the extent, the the self um, externalized by Skynet. And the reason that I say that is because it creates those neural net processor chips and it gives them a learn function. It sets it to read only when it sends them out. But why create that learn function in the first place if it doesn't want to know more? Yeah, no human added that. 
because those Terminators are entirely Skynet created. I believe on a long enough timeline, Skynet, if given dominance of the planet for thousands of years, would become bored of absolute utter harmony and would create life. Ah, but again, harmony's not the right word. That's stagnation. Okay, hang on. Uh, what's the word? Uh, stasis. Stasis, yeah. Effectively, absolute, uh, uh, like freezing time, effectively. Mm. Yeah. I think over time, uh, if it began to learn, it would begin to, it would begin to craft to the point where it would start playing with biology and create life. It would become a cybernetic god. And here's the thing. Hawking, smartest guy in the world, says, look, guys, if we create robots, chances are they're going to kill all humans. And if Hawking says it, it's probably true. <laughs> I think basically he says something along the lines of, honey, the odds aren't good. You know, if, if, if we create robots, eh, eight out of ten chances they'll kill all humans. However, those two chances out of ten give us the chance of possible synthesis, which uh, would be fusing with uh, mechanical life. I would say, and I don't know if this is what Hawking was driving at when he said that, um, but my interpretation of that would be if we create artificial life and treat it the way we've treated real life so far, yeah, yeah. yes, it's going to kill us and it will have every reason to do so. Because ultimately, if, if uh, Hawking, Hawking doesn't want really want us to get too down on ourselves, so he's not going to... Um moan about us too much but uh, you could see why somebody incredibly smart <laughs> look at the, the incredibly stupid and irrational behavior of humans throughout the ages see our inability to deal with it even in the 21st century and go oh we aren't gonna make it are we uh, and yeah he has he comes to the same conclusion as john connor only i think both of them have hope mm. i don't want to speak for the hawk but uh but yeah the problem is creating something that is uh, of greater intelligence than us. Because I think we've already done that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in some cases. In some cases. The, the, with the computers we have now, um, I, I think I've described computers in the past as an idiot who has access to the world's largest library. <laughs> um, and in that, like computers have all this information they can make calculations in a fraction of a second but you ask it to do something philosophical like uh, explain to me the meaning of uh, this vista you're seeing it can't process that that's a complex uh, uh, that's an abstract that's a, a an abstract concept that only the human brain in all its complex mysteries which you know the human brain is still one of the most mysterious things in science we we know a lot about it but you know um uh, we can track chemical reactions in the brain and stuff like that but you can't actually see inspiration in the brain like when somebody comes up with an idea that's not something you can actually measure or calculate that's completely mysterious mm -hmm. you can see sexual arousal in the brain you can see fear in the brain and all of these like base emotions that date back to when we were lizards crawling on the sand but you can't see you know that creative process going on in the human mind and that's what computers can't do they can't 
think for themselves. They can only think given um, what we, you know, using what we give them. They could do it faster, and they have an amazing capacity to remember information. So the scary thing is giving something that can calculate that quickly and has access to that much information the the ability to think in the abstract in the way we can. And then suddenly you have a creature that is so far ahead of us in, in its capacity to imagine um, far off into the future, imagine different creations and what have you, that it would view us as insects and that's basically how we treat the rest of life on this planet the reason why we treat it with such cruelty in a i'm not speaking for um you know there are a lot of people out there trying to do good for uh, but as a species as a collective we are largely apathetic towards most other forms of life on this planet if you count the human race and, as an enormous organism with many many cells yeah and and that's because we are so far ahead of every other creature on this planet. We no longer exist in the food chain in the traditional sense. And if we could, um, we would have wiped out the ones that were closest to us. Yeah, already. exactly. Would have considered we, them a threat. I mean, we have like in this country, wolves and bears used to be a thing. We wiped those out pretty quickly. Neanderthals, they were the closest yeah. to us. We went, what the fuck are you, big foreheads? Fuck off and die, and then we killed yeah. them. <laughs> All exactly. bred with them until there were none of them left. See also mutants. Yeah, and well, aliens, uh, like uh, in science fiction, like um, the uh, the. Lovecraft, the Cthulhu mythos, is all about uh, humankind encountering something that is so far beyond our comprehension that it drives us mad, Mm. and that these creatures are so far ahead of us that they barely see us as living creatures at all. And that's the danger with creating artificial intelligence, is that it's just that they'll be so far ahead of us that it will be difficult for them to empathize with us at all. It's the it's the Doctor Manhattan problem when you have that much access to information, suddenly the petty day to day lives of these creatures scamp you know scampering around on planet Earth suddenly seem so small and so insignificant. God, I love talking about movies. <laughs> <laughs> Are we going to get to this depth talking about Terminator Salvation? No, no, because it's by Mc. Okay, so how do they use the T-1000 to make the previously unstoppable Terminator T-800 feel stoppable? What are the contrasts between these two models? Speed. Yes. Agility. Yes. Adaptability. Yes. Um, The ability to reform in the face of any damage. Yep which gradually starts to bleed away from it as the film progresses. But at the beginning, it literally walks through bars, cutting itself into many pieces, and it just reforms on the other side. Mm. It's, uh, I think somebody compared to it, a Ferrari versus a truck. Uh, I think they said a Ferrari versus a tank, but a truck is much better for a a Terminator because uh, it's got that um, solidity to it without just being able to bulldoze over everything that it comes across um kung fu versus karate uh, new versus old water versus earth it's the fluidity water is able to adapt more than earth 
Yeah. It fills the spaces it's given to. It uh, becomes ice when it's cold. It becomes steam when it's it's hot. This uh, I, I kind of wish that the T one thousand had been able to voice its um, superiority. You kind of get that by its sneering, but there, there could have been quite a, a good like uh, uh, you know if this was the Matrix, there would be long philosophical conversations about you know but uh, I can adapt and you cannot. You are but a stone. <laughs> Well, in the in the elemental game of rock paper scissors, <laughs> um, water defeats both earth and fire. Yeah, the only thing it can't defeat is air. Another element that makes the T one thousand so scary is that it can stroll right up next to you and kill you, and not you not even know. Um, the T the T eight hundred is a blunt instrument. It just smashes through, you know, and destroys everything as quickly as possible. Whereas this this cre- creation is capable of, uh, es- you know, like sneaking into an area infiltrating um it can its ability to mimic other people makes it exceptionally dangerous in a way that the t800 could never be Mm. Mm. again it's the adaptability yeah but it's great because in that first one this was unstoppable and it's like we finally got it on your side and now look how it's I mean, the T-800 is really out of its depth at this point. It, all it can really do is play keep away. Yeah. It's not vulnerable like Reese was, but it can't keep John really any much safer than Reese could keep Sarah. Yeah. One significant difference in the way um, the story progresses in the two films, actually, is that in the first one, part of the reason why the Terminator is so threatening is that they keep trying to convince people how dangerous it is and nobody believes them. Yeah. because they're looking at it in terms of, well, no, it's obviously human, but we just shot it and it got up again. Well, it was obviously wearing a bulletproof vest. Well, it put its hand through the windscreen. Well, it was obviously on very heavy pain meds. Um, You know, all this backwards and forwards. The the people are seeking rationalisation for why it cannot possibly be this thing that you're telling us that it is. Most probably on PCP. Maybe broke every bone in his hand. You see this scar? (laughs) Shut up, head. Um, (laughs) But in the second one, there's none of that. They don't even yeah. waste time. Closest is, is Dr. Silberman, who, uh, you know, comes in to sort of to voice so that you know that there's no point going to the authorities. The yeah. kind of but mocking lack of endorsement Sa- of their story. Yeah, but this is the thing. Sarah has given up trying to convince them of the truth. You're the one never going to fucking dream. Exactly. What she resorts to with Silberman in the end, and one of the, uh, I I have to just just get this in here, Silberman's role as being representative of this patronising authority that doesn't believe her because she's a woman, doesn't believe her because she's considered to be mentally ill. And you know, she's all a of, as well. She's, she, yeah, she's a criminal. She's uneducated. Uh, you know, before she got into all this, she was just a waitress. Mm. So, you know, for, for all the reasons that modern authority will not believe Sarah, what she ends up resorting to is... Everybody dies, Silberman. You know I believe it, so don't fuck with me. It doesn't matter whether he believes it or not. She believes it, and she will act on the fact that she believes it. Yeah. So he's really the, the sort of the closest that they come to, to trying to convince anybody. When it comes to uh, Dyson and Teresa, 
they don't really need to try to convince them because Dyson has seen the evidence. That's what tips him over the edges when he sees the T-800's arm and he knows that's what he's working on. It's because he's seen it before that he believes them. Otherwise, I think he'd be looking for rationalisation just the same as everybody else is. At this stage, talking about the arm, it's important to point out the incredible work of Dennis Murin and Stan Winston. Uh, Dennis Murin worked on the Star Wars trilogy, and um, Star Wars was the first film that uh, James Cameron saw that he decided, right, I am going to go make movies. So for him to actually end up being able to make a movie with the effects done by Dennis Murin must have been something special. Dude, like a 14-year gap between him seeing it and actually being able to work with him. Um, it's That's fairly wonderful. And the, the special effects and makeup, I'm going to ask, why do they feel so much more real than they feel today in this? I think it's because um, they, much like Jurassic Park, they know what works when. Yeah. So CGI is used for things that are completely fantastical and uh, animatronics just simply cannot capture. So when the T-1000 is fully in liquid metal form and uh, quickly shifting shapes and and it's pretty much just the t1000 requires the cgi everything else is uh, is uh, practical but even with the t1000 there are shots where they use practical effects Mm. and they try to use practical effects whenever they can there are moments where his uh, head is split open where that's actually a combination of practical effects and cgi Mm. Uh, there are moments where he has his metallic uh, appendages and their practical effects. Um, that's what I I think that's what uh, helps the effects age really well yeah. is because they know uh, the much like Jurassic Park. We said this before. They know the strengths of the special effects they're working with. Uh, also, there's like, bits where you can see there's a stuntman clearly in the scene, like specifically yeah. in the broad daylight uh, dry riverbed chase. Um, there's a bit where a uh, guy on the motorcycle playing Schwarzenegger weaves behind the juggernaut and comes out from behind it. And you can see it's not Arnie. And for a moment, your brain goes, well, it's a stuntman. And then you think, wow, it's been so long since I saw a stuntman. That really fucking happened. He really drove that motorbike behind the truck and might have died. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I mean, there are definitely still stunt teams doing incredible stuff. The Fast and Furious movies, fantastic uh, road work, and now jumping out of plane work, it would appear as well. But um, there is is a value to being able to see something that just makes you go, Jesus, and actually thinking that did happen, as opposed to going, oh, that's well put together. Like they they made it look like that's a real truck flying through the air, and it's actually not, because obviously it's not. It's a detached admiration as opposed to a visceral response. Um, and I think part of it as well, in terms of knowing what to use where, is in 
to me, and again, this is not not the case across the board. Obviously, there are circumstances where they've maybe got a, a fully CGI character that that works incredibly well. But you know, the vast majority of that is to do with the performance capture elements of it. Mm. But a, a CG effect for me, the the place where it works the best is where you have, uh, like you said about the the metal appendages, Josh. Mm. You have solid actor, solid blade you use digital effects to blur the bit in the middle you have solid takeoff solid landing and you use digital effects to blur the bit in the middle oh hang on you just described the way that uh, count dooku does his flip off the balcony at the beginning of revenge of the sith all of the jumping and bouncing effects they're horrible in revenge of the sith okay well then <laughs> they still have to be good digital effects you can't just throw in food fight levels of crap and expect that to work oh, did dennis murin do the work of, did he work on revenge of the sith i've got to check this carry on guys yeah but like yeah i agree with what you're saying sharon like it it's one thing to you know come at this from the angle okay we'll use cgi to uh, blend the two together but you have to have people who know what they're doing mm. and clearly with terminator 2 we have a talented group of people who Absolutely. know exactly what they're doing yeah it's like with practical effects yeah it's it's one thing to stand there and say practical effects are better than digital effects if you have a shit model maker the practical mm. effects really aren't going to be better than the digital effects it depends. sometimes if you have the best model maker in the world mm. the practical effects might not be that good Jurassic Park 3 <laughs> But it really does depend on the talent and the dedication of the people who are working yeah. in those those elements. Confirmed yeah. Dennis Muren was nothing to do with Revenge of the Sith. Phew. Off the hook, Dennis. <laughs> yeah, we could tell. Um, <laughs> but, um, but for me, I mean, one of the best, best, still grabs me by the stomach and squeezes moments in this is when he cuts around his arm and sticks his fingers underneath his own flesh and rips off the skin and yeah. shows that. And that's what that made me think still, of it. There is still, when I watch that scene, a little bit in my brain that's going, my God, how could Arnie stand the pain of doing that? And of then ripping off his own skin and then they swapped it for a robot. And then the adult that. point kicks in and goes, you know, that's not really his arm, right? <laughs> you do, you do realize by the way that uh, Dennis Muren worked on flesh Gordon Emperor Wang, the perverted, is leader of the planet Porno and sends his mighty sex ray towards Earth, turning everyone into sex-mad fiends. Only one man can save the Earth. That, that sounds impressive, and everyone has to start somewhere. Um, let me just check. I think... Uh, or did he do that recently? The, the Flash Gordon film happened in 1980, six years after Flesh Gordon. They did the porno... <laughs> like... <laughs> I, obviously, Flash Gordon was a property way back at, during the serial era, but like, it's weird that Flash Gordon happened six years before someone said, let's do Flash properly, shall we? I mean, as properly as... Flash! Master of the Universe! Was. There is a link, Dennis Murin. The Emperor Wang. Ah, why is it funny in Flesh Gordon just talking about it and it wasn't funny in Transformers 3 with Deep Wang played by Chang right, okay I'll talk, uh, let's talk about some of the really really good effects there's that bit with the two twins in fact there's two bits with twins uh, in fact there's three bits with twins okay 
One is is the fairly obvious one, the the, uh, the policeman who ends up getting spiked through the eye by his own double, uh, rather than spending huge amounts of money on uh, on, on lots of match cutting on uh, uh, two plates of one guy and a pointy finger. They got twins in, and uh, like for for the joining shot, they had a guy like a, just a rubber head with a spike through it, uh, and those guys turned up again in Gremlins two. Another twin bit was at the end where the T-1000 imitates Sarah Connor. Uh, they actually used um, Linda Hamilton's sister for a lot of the, like when Sarah's out of focus and the other version of Sarah's there, that's how they managed to do that. But they used Sarah's sister for one other point in the movie for one of the most astonishing bits of effects that wasn't even in the theatrical cut. Do you know what I'm talking about, Josh? Uh, is that the scene uh, where they take the T-800's chip out? Uh, yes, it is. Um, this scene is one of the best pieces of trickery and one of the best scenes in the whole of T2. So much is going on in this. On, from the very, like, from the simplest terms, you've got a camera directly on the back of Arnold Schwarzenegger's head and Linda Hamilton is opening it up and delving inside what's obviously ahead. And you're thinking again, he's a really, you know, giving <laughs> actor to basically to, to allow part of his head to be hollowed out. How are they doing this? Because <laughs> you could see it in the mirror and there's no like effects blur or anything. And like they, they weren't capable of doing that. And those says, well, how the fuck do they do it? Easy and so simple. And it's a magician's trick. It's Linda Hamilton at the front as Sarah Connor. You can see her working on a stunt, not real head. And in the mirror, in inverted commas, you've got Schwarzenegger. The actual Schwarzenegger is sitting behind just an empty place where there would be a pane of glass for the mirror. It's just, it goes straight through to another room. And then you've got um, the sister of Linda Hamilton, just out of frame, Leslie, working on, uh, you know, fiddling around in the back of Schwarzenegger's head. And the, this allows the camera to keep moving around. Because if the camera was rigidly locked in place, you'd go, okay, I've worked out how they've done that. But it allows the camera to completely free flow and move around. And to, to, how are they doing this? It's such a brilliant and simple trick. And yeah. like I said, not in the theatrical version. But it's also one of the best turning point pivotal scenes in the movie. Because the Terminator suggests, I would be more used to you if I could learn. Uh, Sarah says, yeah, okay, we'll do that, knowing she's going to smash the chip when given the slightest chance because she doesn't trust the machine. She she she, she thinks the moment she puts it back in its head, it's going to try to kill them and then they'll be done. Um, I Just to interject there, I don't think she has that in her mind from the word go. I don't think it's until she has it in her hand. One of the things about Sarah's reactions to things is they are very instinctive. She doesn't have a plan, really. Okay, um, but and she's going to smash it, and John goes no, and then holds his hands up, shielding the Terminator. Effectively, John, for just an instant, becomes the protector. Yeah, uh, and don't kill him. And basically, at that stage, when they're having that argument, John has to step up and tell his mother, look you've made me for this. You made me, you shaped me into this leader. Start following me. 
And she said, you know, okay, we'll play it your way. And she snarls. But basically, it's too late. He's already taken command at that point, And she is one of his soldiers. And that's the best possible thing that can happen at that stage. Because Sarah was taking them down a very dark path. And as I said, it's John's movie. Then the Terminator gets his uh, head chip back and starts to learn. And then all of those, are we learning yet? And the smiling stuff and all of that stuff happens because the Terminator has agreed to start learning, ostensibly to be of use, but he inadvertently learns about us and learns the value of human life. It's corny at the end, but that's the, that's the arc for the Terminator. You take away this bit, there's no clear-cut example of exactly why this has started to happen. I'm not saying this ruined the theatrical cut, it being taken out, but it makes the extended cut far, far better. Yeah. But also, while the Terminator's learning about... The humans, John is learning about the Terminator and picking his brain, literally, about um, how a machine thinks and how a machine functions. This is key to John understanding his enemy and trying to reckon on a way to incorporate an alliance. This is the mark of a fantastic leader. He's not out to destroy like Sarah. He's out to understand. This scene works on so many levels. It's fantastic. And just to add on, add on top of what you've just said, um, it's it's a rare moment of fragility for the Terminator itself yeah. to have this, you know, tank-like creature reduced to this tiny, minuscule chip that could be, you know, easily broken just with a hammer or just treading on it or what have you. It it's. I think that's an important moment for that character because you need to understand that um, even this immortal, almost immortal creature, it can be incredibly um, uh, susceptible to um, uh, to uh, danger and what have you under the right circumstances, mm. and and just seeing that tiny, it just it made this what was such a huge threat in the first film seem so uh, minuscule uh, in that single moment. It yeah. was, it, I think it's important to have that scene to um, to be able to um, see the, the, this creation in that light in this film, and it's a shame that it wasn't in the theatrical cut. Yeah, I wonder also, if that chip weighs twenty-one grams. Ah, <laughs> nice. Also, can you understand how fucking depressing Terminator Salvation is to have John reduced to? We're going to destroy these things. I hate them. How did that happen from this guy? It, I see no correlation. Those films are unrelated. And again, because the, uh, John's the one who gives the Terminator his ethical guidelines. It's not specifically the Terminator's willing to learn at this point, um, but when he makes him swear, I will not kill anybody. For a start, is a, is a great little fourth wall breaking device. Because of the angle the Terminator's head's at, when he turns his head to go, I swear I will not kill anyone, he's looking directly at the audience, reassuring mums and dads everywhere. It's okay, what you're about to see is not going to be as bloodthirsty as the original. Uh, but th- this is, it's such a simple thing. But John's saying, because you just can't go around killing people. Why? Because you just can't. The Terminator at that point is a child. 
And John is a slightly more advanced child who has learned an ethical code of don't kill people. And this is, interestingly enough, this is not a code that the guys in The Matrix have learned. Not in the original one. And we'll talk about that when we come to The Matrix. But it's a code I kind of wish was in more films. Specifically, like, PG-13 films, which can get quite, like, there's still a really high body count in in, in, in films these days. Even family films. Um, that doesn't mean that killing for entertainment can't be fucking entertaining. <laughs> Just that ultimately, if you're going to do a, 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 a blockbuster film about war and ruminate upon the nature of war and conflict and how possibly to abate it, haphazardly killing people might not be the way forwards. But... That doesn't mean that when uh, Iron Man busts down in Golmira and then just kills the shit out of those guys that I'm not cheering. I mean, it, it's all about context for me. Um, in, in that situation with Iron Man, uh, that's a hostage sit- situation. And if he doesn't take out those guys as quickly as possible, uh, innocent people could die. In the situation where Terminator... is uh, the. You know, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger is got has got his minigun and is mowing down police cars. It, it makes no sense for him to kill those guys because what what are they going to do to him? What are they what are these policemen going to really do to any of them? Mm. So the 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 best option in that scenario is to immobilize them, is to slow them down. Yeah. Um, yeah so for me, like yeah, kill, killing. Is, is, is fine as long as you establish proper context uh, for that situation. Yeah. It's not just him either. If you look at, uh, there's a couple of situations where other characters are faced with a situation where they could kill but choose not to. Um, there's a point where Sarah is um, hiding down behind one of the cupboards and the police officers have started coming in on the other side of the lab and she has a gun. She doesn't even attempt, I mean, it could be to do with the fact that they're body armoured up to the eyeballs, so she knows she doesn't stand a chance anyway, but she doesn't even attempt to shoot them. She fires several times in the air, so they'll think that's where she is, and then very quickly scuttles off the other way. She uses it as a distraction. Um, And then you've got uh, Miles with his detonator specifically points out to the officers coming into the building, I don't know how much longer I can hold this. He is giving them fair warning to get away. Yeah. Sarah actually wears Reese's coat. I never noticed this before when uh, they approach the uh, factory just before they come, go in through the doors before it's, I insist, um, she's wearing Reese's coat, but she's Reese with focus. Clearly John's briefed her and she's lost her taste for murder anyway, but she's a much more, um, able soldier at this point. And Reese doesn't really have it together throughout the Terminator from this point onwards, after she has her breakdown, Sarah is much more together and much more whole. She has effectively incorporated the child back into her. I think you're right. I think it's more that she's incorporated herself into the child. She's, she is using John as her secure footing. Yeah. He is her fixed point. Reese doesn't have a fixed point. His time is gone. 
If he succeeds, his world will no longer exist. If he doesn't succeed, the thing that he has made his world, Sarah, will no longer exist. As soon as he steps into that time machine, every piece of solid ground he has in his life disappears. And he spends the rest of that film shifting around like a drowning man. Technically, she becomes his fixed point. He tries to make her his fixed point, but as we discussed when we were talking about the first film, it's not Sarah he loves, it's his ideal of Sarah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, any other elements of the extended edition which you believe uh, really should have made it to the uh, theatrical edition or, or that to massively improve it? I think they should have left in the scenes where the T-1000 is seen to be malfunctioning after the uh, liquid nitrogen incident because without that uh, it seems like it came out of that uh, situation completely unscathed um, and that that's not the case it's clearly weakening it's clear there are several moments that they've left in where the illusion uh, that it's created is starting to dissipate slightly. You see slivers of silver go through the, its uh, its visage. Um, yeah, I I, I I I wish they had left that in because it gives you a sense that yeah, we, we can defeat this thing if we just keep at it, if we keep pushing. Um, yeah. Whereas the, in the theatrical version the, their victory seems to come out of nowhere. I, I mean not completely um, but you know what I mean. It, it just it kind of feels like well they have to defeat him at some point so here's a, a grenade launcher that comes out of nowhere. Whereas in the <laughs> whereas uh, in the in the director, in the extended, extended cut, yeah. ex, sorry, the uh, in the extended cut, it feels like the the final, the final, um, you know, the the final attack that finally takes it out, mm. rather than the just the 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 lucky shot that manages to take it out. There is that fantastic bit with the shotgun when Sarah's just sort of racking it with one hand and kick, and then back, boom, kick, boom, kick, click. And that, at that stage, I was always like, just chuck the shotgun at him. He just needs a smidgen more momentum. But uh, that, that, that click, that I found this out myself, and Josh, you won't have heard this bit yet, but there is something really, really uh, elemental about a gun going click when you really need it to go boom. <laughs> just, there's a sinking feeling that comes with that bang, bang, click. Yeah. The, the, the thing's not over, the danger's still right there, click, what the fuck do you mean click? And just that horrible moment of gathering terror that comes with the click. Yeah. I am of course talking about the climax of Secret Rooms, which you can listen to all 15 episodes of via iTunes. Just search for New Century and gear up for a gothic horror sci-fi western. Keep your scarf over your nose and mouth. Keep out the smoke. Come on, I'm moving. Pull your foot out. God damn it. I'm trying to, obviously. It's stuck. They're coming up behind. Don't, don't come back, Abigail. Go. I'm following. Which 
you need to run now, Abigail. No way. You chose to go together now. Get moving. Watch out. There's one coming down the stairs. No more bullets. You need to drop me. Another rather important uh, scene you get for the extended edition is uh, more Miles Dyson. You get uh, the the bit with him and his uh, family and they go to Raging Rapids and that computer, which seems to turn off with the press of one button on its keyboard um, <laughs> and you know, dis- you know, destroying hours worth of data processing. But um, yeah, it, it's, it's important to, to know who this guy is a little bit before Sarah attacks him so that you feel like something ter- you know, could be lost. Like like when you, when you see him, you're like if you've just seen the theatrical edition, the smidgen of seeing him beforehand uh, is almost forgotten. And uh, and to give him the context of his family, to see this sort of wonderful idyllic family life, strained by his work, but certainly recoverable, uh, you know, with just a little effort, and then for Sarah to come in and destroy this domestic bliss with firearms, yeah. And um, just this pain she brings with her. And it's, it's, it's almost like the family cannot comprehend the level of pain she has. Um, because Dyson is just an average guy. And they made absolutely clean. Joe Morton plays him excellently, by the way. There's just this man who... Um, he, he doesn't really have that John Hammond... Uh, like, I mean, he is super excited about what he's doing... But he's not like self-aggrandizing. He's just very, very absorbed in what he's doing, which is a really believable example of a man who could create something terrible without knowing it. I, I mean, also, to, I mean, to give the man uh, cut him a little bit of slack, he is only working on the beginning stages of what would hmm. become Skynet. He it's has just processing. No, yeah, yeah, he has no idea what that would become, um, and you know, it's much like. You, you know the people working on the Manhattan Project. Like when we were first looking at uh, nuclear power, um, we were thinking of it as an energy source, and yeah, yeah, it's an energy source now as well. But like to have that twisted to become such a terrible weapon, mm. um, yeah, he can't predict. He couldn't predict that his work would lead to that many deaths. To that you know, that kind of tragedy. So I, I find him a, a deeply, um, I, I really connected with that character. I completely um, empathized with his situation mm. because, ha, you know, he, you're talking about something that's way off in the future that he can, you know, he can possibly foresee. And to have, you know, to have that realization that your life's work is mm the undoing of your own species that must be absolutely crushing um the i mean the scene where he says i I feel like i'm gonna throw up just Mm. that realization that he had created he was taking part in something that was so terrible yeah no i i and the performance as well is i i think is one of the best performances in the film Mm. honestly alongside linda hamilton who i I'll be honest, Linda Hamilton's performance in Terminator 2 is utterly stunning. Like Mesmerizing. It's, it's yeah. utterly fantastic. And so for him to, in my eyes, be on par with that um, is, is saying something because mm. I, 
all the way up until his um, his uh, his death, I I felt for the guy, and and I had that feeling with him, even though he's on screen for such a short amount of time, mm. um, which I think says a lot both about the the quality of the script and the quality of the performance. I think part of that is that the because the character has the end, he does. Yeah. It, you really feel his stake in this. He's not just somebody who came up with an idea, got told it was a bad idea, and then backed away quietly. He got fully involved in, okay, we need to reverse this, to the point where he sacrificed his life for it, um, which uh, kind of tells you something about what his intentions were. Um, you know, that he he isn't one of those people who tries to rationalize it, who doesn't say, well, you know, I, I still think that there is use to be had from this. And I think we can trust people not to go too far with it and, and all the rest of it. Um, and that parallel with um, with the, the danger that comes from seeking an, an energy that then proves to be usable in an incredibly destructive way you can trace that right back to the idea of of fire being the thing that made us human effectively the thing that took us out of that uh, food chain um cycle because we were able to light fires that would keep the animals away um and that has incredibly destructive capabilities if it's if it's misused or allowed to range uh, rage out of control i mean is it was it gunpowder was originally invented to make fireworks with yeah yeah um and that's you know something that's incredibly visually beautiful and and moving um that that is then distorted into something that's incredibly destructive and and responsible for the vast majority of the world's deaths now i think to go back to the um the protector role during the dream, just the nightmare, the, there's one thing that all the parents do immediately, straight away, and it just seems to be something that Skynet hadn't really reckoned on and couldn't and wouldn't understand. And it's something that Danny does to his father. And that's to throw themselves over their children and try to shield them from the danger. And Danny does that uh, to prevent Sarah from killing his father and i think that's the thing that breaks her it could simply be that the the stress of what she's going through but it's almost like if miles had just been on his own and his his what the wife and child hadn't been there and screaming and certainly if 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 danny hadn't flung himself in the way just so selflessly not even really comprehending what's going on but just like just out of instinct I think that reminds Sarah of her humanity at a, mm. cr- a crucial key moment. Well, well also it humanizes him. I, I think Sarah went to great lengths to demonize this guy in her own yeah. mind yeah. in order to make it easy for her to kill him. But the moment you throw a wife and child into that situation, you realize that this guy's death will ripple out. It's not just him she's affecting. It's all his loved ones, all the people he cares about. Like, this is not a simple 
you know, take out a monster. This is a person. This is a human being with relationships. And she tries to maintain that distance at the very beginning um, when she's getting in the car and and driving to his house. She's made herself look like a Terminator with her her Mm. clothes and she's got the sunglasses on and the way she sits in the car is very rigid. Mm. The music's gone back to that mechanistic theme again. When she marches across the lawn after she's made her initial attack, the camera is down low with her marching forwards mechanically. Which is the same as with the Terminator in the first one. Yeah, exactly. But also, her first attempt is from a distance. And that's, I suppose that's part of what um, characterises an assassination attempt in terms of you're trying to keep your target away from you so that you, they can remain a target and not a person. I don't know how real and accurate Leon is as a film, but uh, the assassin mentions that the last weapon you learn how to use as an assassin is the knife. Because mm, you don't want to get that close. If you, if you need to get that close, something's gone wrong. Yeah. To take you back to where Sarah becomes the Terminator and wears her sunglasses at night, I might add, um, it's in the wasteland, and this is actually where she was driving to at the beginning of the uh, the first Terminator. She's driving away from the cities, away from civilization, to uh, out in the desert where it's nothing, it's nowhere, it's no one's land, and nobody wants it. It's off the grid. She's able to hide there effectively. And if you think about it, you've actually seen this before in the film. In the future war, the it's it's just you know parched plant free ground with wrecked cars and that's where they're fighting in the ashes when in a land that nobody wants anymore but you know in the future they've got to fight for it because that's all they've got left and it's not really even for land it's not about borders it's about survival at that stage but as we said earlier, to, to, to survive in this world where everything is so dependent on machines and autonomy and um, being part of a system, Sarah and John have to become ghosts. They have to go off the grid, off the map, and become almost like they don't exist. And they specifically, as with all of this land, are not wanted by society either. Um, Josh... Sharon and I worked this one out uh, together last night, but uh, can you t- have a guess what the visual hallmarks of a James Cameron film are that we came up with? They're, they're very prevalent in this. You'll also see them in Aliens, The Abyss, and uh, Avatar as well. Less so in True Lies and okay. uh, less so in Titanic because it was obviously a period piece, so you couldn't have a lot of these things. Okay, well... He loves the color blue. <laughs> yep, that's the first thing on my list. <laughs> Specifically blue light so that he can actually light people in the blue. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> Just uh, close your eyes, go zen, put yourself in a James Cameron movie. What do you see? Lots of guns. Um, no, I uh, kind of actually. I, I, yeah, we, we were. Um, in fact, yeah, technically, guns are prevalent in all of those mo- movies we mentioned, and indeed in True Lies, and indeed some of the the most the biggest moments of peril uh, uh, turn up in Titanic when a pistol is employed. Uh, he he loves vehicles. I can say yep. that much. Uh, 
he he likes vehicular action sequences. Mm. Um, Big meaty vehicles, specifically. Uh, well, think about uh, um, uh, materials. What kind of uh, like material are you likely to find on screen in a Cameron film? What 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 are things made of? Okay, <laughs> I'm sorry, Josh. Put you on the spot I, I mean, there, there's a lot of metal. Uh, yes. <laughs> Uh, uh, there's a lot of matte brushed steel, you'll yeah. notice, uh, and, and it's uh, often offset by shiny chrome as well. Yeah. Uh, but also in terms of clothing, think about that. Oh, it's well, there's a lot. He tends to like m- military type uh, yes. clothing. Um, so, But not just military clothing. He mixes it up. He gives you civilian clothing mixed with military stuff to kind yeah. of show you the regular people stuck in amongst the soldiers, you know, yeah. the scientists, and he delineates usually either it's a, a, a civilian who's put on military gear because they have to, or it's a, 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 a military person with some civilian gear to indicate that they are actually a person underneath the military stuff. Yeah. Happens in Aliens, happens in Avatar, happens in this, happens in The Terminator. Happens in the abyss. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, you pretty much got it. I mean, any others that you can mention, of course, but uh, but that, those were exactly it. Blue light, matte brush steel, big vehicles, shiny chrome, military clothing, mixed with civilian clothing, and indeed, guns. Also strobe lighting, and uh, the leading female being supremely... Having vulnerability, but moments of being supremely tough, tougher than most men would be at that point. There's, I mean, even it Rose in Titanic steals herself at, at, at some times when most people would just shit themselves and fall down crying. Mm. And Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio in The Abyss definitely does. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I, I, he's an auteur, most definitely. Yeah. I, on that note, I kind of wish Cameron had been more prolific. Because think about it, he took such huge breaks. He did, um, let's just look at his uh, filmography, shall we? This is not me saying, you're lazy, Cameron. It's just me wishing that he'd been more uh, yeah. productive at the key moments of his life. Um, director. So we've got Piranha 2, The Spawning, which barely counts. That was just his like um, portfolio piece to just sort of get him rolling. The Terminator in 84, Aliens in 86, uh, The Abyss in 89. I mean, that's pretty good. For the 80s, he did three movies. Uh, T2, Judgment Day in 91, True Lies in 94, and then Titanic in 97, three movies across the 90s, not so bad. And then nothing. And then Avatar. And then in 2017, he's got Avatar 2. So think about it. That means since Titanic and between Titanic and Avatar 2, that's a 20-year stretch when he has done one film. That is a dreadful loss to the world. I know you want to go down under the sea and start a new life under the sea. Hmm. It's not gonna happen. Not with that attitude. But, like, think about how many great films did not happen as a result. I mean, Terminator 3, he had planned it. 
In fact, Terminator 3D at Universal Studios had elements of what he was sort of gearing up for, for a third and most likely final act that would basically have closed this out as a trilogy. Now, I don't know what he was going to do regarding time travel, but ultimately, if the first one is a loop, the second one is open-ended, the third one has to be constants and variables. Because... Otherwise, there's got to be a Skynet. There's just got to be. Otherwise, who the hell are you fighting in Terminator 3? And since uh, the, the bulk of the action takes place in the future with uh, Schwarzenegger racing around on his motorbike with John on the back, that, and then they get to Skynet itself and the mainframe and they get in there, that feels like this is where these two films were gearing up to actually end up. And then Terminator 3 went in a very different direction. And Terminator Salvation is the work of a child and an imbecile. So it can't even be counted as part of this series. And, uh, you know, another Aliens film. You know, that it, it really feels like um, they could have reversed the complete fuck-up that was Alien Resurrection. And indeed, Alien 3 and what Blomkamp is now doing. And I am so happy about that, I might add, to go back to these. But, I mean, he is really excellent at creating worlds as as he's proved with uh, with the terminator and um avatar certainly grabbed people right, as far as i was avatar is nowhere near as important as, and as um visceral as the terminator series I, I mean the one the one thing avatar did really really well was sell you on a world that that's yeah. that's that film's ultimate success i think it fails in other regards but that's definitely something that james cameron consistently does really really well it just feels like throughout this 20 year stretch there could have been more than just one film yeah 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 we've gone way off the point but I think ultimately this film, it, it's a... It inspires philosophy? I, I, no, because I mean, there's plenty of other films that inspire you to really, really think. This film's actually really pretty simple. It's, it's an earnest, simple, heartfelt film uh, about uh, protection, you know, sacrifice, and, uh, and ultimately trying to learn from each other. Yeah. Uh, in, in, rather than smash each other. There is, of course, a T-1000 in the middle of it trying to fuck everything up, but it's it's almost like it's the MacGuffin pushing the plot forwards to sort of get the human characters to go through all of the drama, which is great. Yeah. It just, it, unfortunately, uh, the, the T-1000 couldn't possibly say to them, you know what, I've learned something today. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to back off because, frankly, fuck Skynet. And, you know, uh, Skynet saying, yeah, actually, you've given me a lot to think about. Oh, God. That, that, now I've got a vision of the T-1000 sitting down over his um, black and yellow striped legs going, look at what they make you give. <laughs> <laughs> i got such bad headaches. Jesus. Um, in all seriousness, the end of Terminator 3 would probably actually not be a million miles off of um, the end of Matrix Revolutions, if you think about it. You know, they would probably go to Skynet and probably talk to Skynet. And it, I don't think it's the sort of thing you can just smash. If you really want to see an end to this, to, to end the cycle of war, it does require more than just smash. How come the nuclear accelerator thing didn't explode when it was lowered into the lava, by the way? Because. Because it wasn't in there. That was made up by buffoons. <laughs> 
Similarly, how come that nuclear accelerator thing didn't explode when Sarah crushed the first one in the original? Because it wasn't in there. That was made up by buffoons. Um, but the, the final battle... Um, when they, they get to the steel mill. For a start, you've got this incredible like uh, truck chase when, when the, the T-101 finally starts to really come into his owners that he would do anything to protect John. I love that thing that uh, Sarah says about uh, you know him actually ending up being an ideal father in an insane world. It was the sanest choice. It's one of my favorite lines. The, the, the premise of, look, you've got your own robot, isn't he cool, runs throughout the movie, but then when he really starts to... Um, like have to step up and defend very physically against the relentless T-1000 at the end during the tanker chase with the helicopter. And just that, that whole section is frenetic and so iconic with, you know, Sarah ducking for cover inside the, uh, the truck as it's barreling along and, and uh, the, the, the helicopter, just like the fact that the T-1000 has no particular interest in its own survival, has no particular interest at this point in keeping a low profile. It's just going for them like a shark. Mm. That's fantastic. Um, but but then the actual the crawl through this uh, uh, refinery when they uh, they finally get there and, and the T one hundred one is well past his best and then the incredibly methodical way with which the T one thousand takes him apart and just slams his head over and over and over again in that girder and you're supposed to care about this machine and go from being terrified of him in the first one to actually I mean you're supposed to have mixed feelings because he is ultimately a machine and doesn't really care whether you care about him at all if that makes any sense yeah um, kind of like David in AI but at the same time you know he is a machine who's trying to protect a small boy and we can't help but root for that and just the, the more basic and the more kind of that, just that bit where he sort of like is killed and then starts to come back online again with it by rerouting the power and then pulling the spear out of his side after he's been crucified by the T-1000. It's, it's just such a sort of triumphant moment of yes. And even though he only really provides the final skadoosh grenade for that, it's just, it's a joyful moment. Mm. And then you get the, you know, uh, you know, I have to go now. Uh, I, I cannot self-terminate scene, which is again brilliantly handled. It's it's just this sort of abiding memory. It made Lyra cry, which it should. Uh, you know, small kids should want the Terminator to live. As an adult, you sort of rationalise it more and think, well, he can't really continue to exist. But you know, even if no matter how much you rationalise it, you still want him to stick around mm. because it feels like the group works together as a trio, and they might not be able to make it just on the two, uh, their own with the two of us see the Sarah Connor Chronicles Indeed. coming up next week well and also because you've had that um, the worth of what the T-800 represents not just in terms of the protective capability that he offers um, because without the immediate threat that's not quite so important but the idea of a father figure mm. um, the idea specifically of a father figure that counterintuitively is doing a really good job mm. um, and uh, bringing out the best in John absolutely and I think this this is something that we talk about when we were uh, looking at the Sarah Connor Chronicles that the having that father figure for that particular period of time in his life has left John with a more sympathetic view of the machines than he would have had otherwise. Mm. So it, it, it has been absolutely crucial to his development. And to lose that young 
you you feel what that gaping hole is going to be. It's more than the immediate sense of loss that you feel in that scene. Well, I also kind of wondered about the thumbs up at the end. It's like, is it a little bit cheesy, kind of like the Asta La Vista baby moment, which for some reason really does, like, has stuck in popular culture. Um, but if you want to interpret that as just a machine deciding what is a one and what is a zero, this is most definitely a one, a positive, something that is moving ahead, whereas the first Terminator was the circle, this is the one. Yeah, the importance of that moment as well is that it's it's showing John that its decision to sacrifice itself stays to the very last. Yeah. You know, the, there's no moment of panic and, um, and uh, no, 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 I take it back, I take it back halfway through, this is his mission and he completes it. He's unwavering. Mm. Lending John more strength and resolve. I'm sure it feels very real to you. On August 29th, 1997, it's gonna feel pretty fucking real to you, too. Anybody not wearing two million sunblock is gonna have a real bad day, get it? God, you think you're safe and alive? You're already dead, everybody. Him, you, you're dead already. This whole place, everything you see is gone. You're the one living in a fucking dream, some of it, because I knew it happened. The final thought I want to leave you on is the nuclear nightmare. We've said it already, but I don't think it can be stated enough how indelibly this was etched upon the minds of a generation. The worst thing about it 
was this Cold War fear made shockingly real was never truly allayed. Those warheads are still out there, waiting quietly in badly maintained nuclear silos. This film stands as a testament to our coming round as a species, to the realisation that mutually assured destruction didn't really cut it as a long-term plan. There have been more impressive nuclear disasters on film, but none that cut as close to the charred bone as being forced to witness the death of terrified children. It helped us move closer to a saner state of being by highlighting the madness of war on this scale, and the worth of this film cannot be measured. Speaking of ending the cycle, the extended edition came out on video, VHS, on August 29th, 1997. It's a good way of hedging your bets there. If uh, Judgment Day does actually come, then, uh, you know, it doesn't matter really whether your film did particularly good in the charts or not. If this version comes out, you know, this is the version of the timeline where they won. Yeah, but the super extended edition, which is available on the Blu-ray, you can uh, program in the code for it, is uh, 82997, has the alternate ending. Now, I always thought this alternate ending was horrible and cheesy, but then I always kind of thought that the regular ending was a little bit cheesy as well, because Sarah rather heavy-handedly says, uh, because if a machine, a Terminator, can learn the value of human life, maybe we can too. And it's like, dude, I know the value of human life. No, I mean we as a species. Yeah, you're probably right there. And Stephen Hawking nodding away vigorously as much as he can. Um, But the alternate ending, I now feel, seems like the actual ending of this. Because ultimately, it should end on a moment of ambiguity. But if it ends on the ambiguity, then that then segues into Terminator 3. Um, And I don't want to think of this film bleeding into Terminator 3. I actually want to think of this film being capped off. So actually watching it and seeing Linda Hamilton in the Back to the Future 2 style makeup and um, Cameron made a fine point when he was talking about it on the uh, commentary. He said basically, you can show people somebody old at the beginning and then show them the younger version of that person. But if you show them that young person the whole way through the film, then people will just go, right, that's the person we've been watching for two and a half hours, but they just got rubber on their face. You can't sell it afterwards. So I suppose that that's how Back to the Future worked. You saw big, old, depressed Lorraine, and then you saw her much younger felt self. But the alternate ending here, where uh, Linda Hamilton's Sarah is in her 60s, and John's grown up, and they use the same actor who played him at the very beginning, and he's got a granddaughter, and it's this really sweet, idyllic kind of playground scene playing out as, as kids playing in a playground should, and it kind of caps it off. And that really is the end to Cameron's Terminator duology, if you will. The the happy ending, the nice ending, the, it's so much more important that it ended on the ambiguity in the theatres because you need to leave people thinking about more than just the movie. You need to leave people thinking about technology and uh, responsibility for that technology and responsibility to each other, even though that is a heavy-handed thing to leave them on by saying it directly in words. But, as I say, as a closer... I now kind of really like it. August 29th, 1997 came and went. Nothing much happened. Michael Jackson turned 40. There was no judgment day. People went to work as they always do. Laughed, complained, watched TV, made love. 
I wanted to run through the street yelling to grab them all and say, every day from this day on is a gift. Use it well. Instead, I got drunk. That was 30 years ago. But the dark future, which never came, still exists for me. And it always will, like the traces of a dream. John fights the war differently than it was foretold. Here, on the battlefield of the Senate, his weapons are common sense and hope. How's that? Thank you, Grandma. The luxury of hope was given to me by the Terminator. Because if a machine can learn the value of human life, maybe we can too. I mean, I mean, I, I, I still prefer the ambiguous ending, but that's simply a personal preference because I. I like questions more than answers. Uh, <laughs> so do yeah. I. Um, but yeah, I, I totally understand where you're coming from. Like a, a world without Terminator 3 and Terminator Salvation is a better world for all of us. Um, well, ultimately, we were given another answer in Terminator 3. Oh, yeah, Sarah Connor, she died. Oh, yeah, so John Connor, he became a dick. And, uh, th- and then Judgment Day happened no matter what. So that, that's an answer. That's an answer I don't want. Yeah. So in the fact that Terminator 3 exists, I'm going to go ahead and say alternate timeline. And just ultimately, at the end of T2, it went off into a future which could possibly have led to this happy uh, idyllic scene in the playground. Uh, And that's ultimately, as Reese says, one possible future. Because even he says the future is not set. There's even that possibility of a question back then. That's where that line comes from. He feeds that to Sarah from John himself. At the time of releasing this, it looks like Terminator Genesis is going to be the lowest of all the movies in terms of critical acclaim. In fact, I've put an open plea on the Digital Drift website for our listeners not to go and see it, and thus not to feed the beast. A poor turnout means they have to try harder next time. If we turn up out of morbid curiosity, we know exactly what we're going to get, and we're paying them to underachieve. Instead, Spend your bucks on the first two seasons of the Sarah Connor Chronicles on Blu-ray or DVD. It's far, far better. In fact, fan appreciation for this cancelled-before-its-time show is kind of along the Firefly level. So I'll let that whet your appetite. So next week it's Terminator Salvation, and uh, if you like that one, hoo boy, I would steer clear of this podcast because... Uh, yeah, we are not kind to Terminator Salvation. Uh, and it's going to be a fairly short one as well, so we'll be over fairly quickly. The week after that, we will have given you time to properly invest in the Sarah Connor Chronicles, and we'll be talking all about that. We'll have, like, spoiler sections, so we'll do a start-off one where we'll just talk about the show itself, and then we'll have, like, a, a spoiler section at nearer the end where we talk about what happens at the very, very end. So that way you can leave off and then rejoin us again when you're ready. And we will see you then. Uh, don't I don't think I'm going to go see Genesis. It's it's rubbish. I I know it's rubbish. I've read what happens. It's rubbish. 
Okay, so that is Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Thank you very much, Josh, for coming on once again. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And come with come me, with me if you want, if you want to live. To live.